if you're here for the first time, either in person or online, we're so grateful to be together here uh, on this Lord's Day morning. He's gathered us here in this place. This place is a holy place because He is here. And if you're wondering what do what do you all believe at Windsor Road Christian Church, we just sang it. The Apostles' Creed, I believe. And I'm going to ask, now that we have sung it, for us to recite it together as a church community. The Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified dead and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, whence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting, the church said, amen, amen. Do you remember last year when we walked through the Apostles' Creed phrase by phrase and we talked about this very important statement of belief? Um, it doesn't change. It changes us. It shapes us and forms us. And we started that creed, we started uh, reciting the creed and, and preaching through the creed line by line before COVID hit. And it has served as an anchor for my soul in these strange and strained times. And so uh, if you're uh, wanting to review, we've got those messages uh, online and we talk about each one of those phrases and uh, uh, it, it is an anchor for the soul. And it's what unites us as a church. Uh, we don't have any wiggle room concerning the truths of the Apostles' Creed. These are matters of first importance, first importance. And last week we talked about the difference between matters of first importance, which there's no wiggle room on. We talked about matters of second importance, which are various interpretations of uh, Christian teachings that are still within Christianity. And then we talked about matters of third importance, uh, matters of opinion. And, and these are matters that guide us according to our conscience, our conscience. And that leads us to our message today on the conscience. The title of today's message is Understanding the Conscience. Understanding the Conscience. Say that with me. Understanding the Conscience. Again, Understanding the Conscience. I really felt deep down that it was the right thing I had to do. The moment I said it, I wish I hadn't. I don't think I'll ever be able to forgive myself. 
I wrote that email, but I feel conflicted about whether or not I should push the send button. Oh, don't go there. Don't go there. No, don't, don't, don't say it. Don't you, don't, don't say it. No, no, no. Have you ever heard those voices inside? None of those phrases that I just spoke use the word in those phrases, but all of them are talking about the word. And it's the word conscience. Conscience. Today I want to talk about the conscience. Uh, We're in a series over Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, and it's a series entitled United in Christ. And in 1 Corinthians chapters 8, 9, and 10, the apostle discusses this word conscience. Conscience. And we started last week in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. But today I want us to just do basically a topical sermon on the word that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians and elsewhere in Scripture. So this is a series within a series on the conscience. On the conscience. Paul wrote this letter to unify a divided congregation. And one of the reasons why the congregation was so divided had to do with this word conscience. Conscience. So I want to discuss this word. This is a a word study sermon. So we're going to do some work today. Here's what we're going to do. First, we're going to look at scriptures in the New Testament regarding the conscience. That's what we're going to do first. Secondly, I've got two questions to ask us. Two questions. What and why? What is the conscience and why did God give you your conscience? Okay, what and why? So I want to look at some scriptures on the conscience, ask two questions about the conscience, what and why, and then I want to talk about Garth Brooks. You didn't see that one coming, did you? Yeah. Yeah. But that's what I want to do. That's what we're going to do today. Bible, two questions, Garth Brooks. Let's go to work. What does the Bible have to say about the conscience? The conscience. Well, the word conscience in the New Testament comes from a Greek word. It's uh, the word sunidesis. Sunidesis, think of it this way. Soon I'm going to spend the day with my sis. Sunidesis. Sunitis, the word means knowledge with. Knowledge with. Actually, the word conscience, the English word means the exact same thing, literally. Conscience with, or, or excuse me, knowledge with, or knowledge within. It's like there's this other person living inside of you. And this other person is in on your little secrets. And you can't get away from it. And what the Apostle Paul does is he takes a 500-year-old word from Greek culture. That is, it was 500 years by the time Paul was writing Corinthians. He takes a 500-year-old word from the Greeks and he Christianizes it. He drenches it in the gospel. And the word shows up 
30 times in the New Testament. All right? And let's just take a brisk walk through each of these occasions. 30 times. Uh, On your app is an outline, and it should have each of those scripture references. And if you'd like a, a Word document or a PDF of these references, you email me, randy at windsorroad.org. I'll make sure you get it. So let's take a brisk walk through the New Testament. We're going to see where conscience shows up. And what I want us to do is not just, I don't want to just show you the word conscience in a particular verse. Look at the adjectives and verbs surrounding conscience conscience, and that will help us understand what it can be and what it can do. So in Acts chapter 23, verse 1, the apostle Paul is talking to religious authorities, and he says, I've lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Acts 24, 16 talks about Paul's clear conscience before God and man. So a conscience can be good and clear. And clear. Uh, in Romans chapter 2, verse 15, and Romans chapter 9, verse 1, the apostle Paul speaks about the conscience ability to bear witness or to testify. Romans chapter 13 verse 5 speaks of the phrase, for the sake of conscience, meaning conscience can regulate your behavior. We do what we do out of deference to the conference for the sake of, sake of the conscience. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 7, and chapter 8, verse 10, Paul talks about what can happen when the conscience is weakened. It can be defiled, defiled, verse 7, 8, 7, and it can be encouraged to violate itself, 8, 7. And then in 1 Corinthians 8, 12, Paul says that the conscience, when it is weak, can be wounded. So your conscience can be wounded. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 25 and 27 talk about living or eating or behaving on the ground of the conscience. So the conscience is a ground upon which I stand. 1 Corinthians 10.28 speaks of the conscience regulating behavior again for the sake of conscience. And then 1 Corinthians 10.29, Paul says, why should my liberty... Why should my freedom be determined by someone else's conscience? So Paul is saying, don't let someone else's conscience determine your liberty. It's your conscience that you need to pay attention to in terms of regulating your behavior. 2 Corinthians 1.12 speaks of the testimony of our conscience. That is the conscience bears witness. The conscience testifies. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 2 and 2 Corinthians 5.11 Paul talks about living your life in total transparency before the conscience. I hope that my life is known to God and also to your conscience, he says. 
1 Timothy chapter 1.5 and 1 Timothy 1.19 repeat this reference about the good conscience, as does 1 Timothy 1.19. We hold on to faith and a good conscience. And then 1 Timothy 3.9 repeats this notion of the clear conscience. 1 Timothy 4, 12, uh, 2 rather, speaks of the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. So the conscience can be rendered non-functioning or insensitive. It can be deadened due to lack of truth-telling. 2 Timothy 1.3 again speaks about the clear conscience. Titus 1.5 says that the conscience can be defiled, defiled. And Hebrews chapter 9, verse 9, tells us that the Mosaic covenant, that is the sacrifices and gifts spoken of in, the, in Moses' law, cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. That is, cannot improve, cannot make complete the conscience, which implies that the conscience can be improved upon, you see. And that's why Hebrews 9.14 says that only the blood of Christ can purify the conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And then there's Hebrews chapter 10, verse 2, that refers to the conscience as consciousness or awareness of sins. Hebrews 10, 22, just as Paul talks about a good conscience or a clear conscience, Hebrews 10, 22 talks about an evil conscience. Hebrews 13, 18 repeats the notion of a clear conscience. We want to... We want to have a sincere, clear, good, clean conscience acting honorably in all things. 1 Peter 2, 19 says that when, our, when, when we are conscious of God, mindful of God, aware of God, when suffering wrong, this is a gracious thing. 1 Peter 2:19. And then 1 Peter 3, 16 and 21 Repeat this notion of the good conscience. And in 21, Peter says that baptism is, is an expression of the good conscience. The good conscience means, God, I, I'm sincere in my plea to you to save me by grace through faith. That's what baptism pictures. There it is, 30 times. That's a lot of data, isn't it? So let's organize it. Let's talk about what the conscience can be and what the conscience can do. So on the positive side, we said that the conscience can be clear, clear or clean, good, pure, blameless. Uh, one scholar in my study uh, wrote... Uh, that a good conscience is the best pillow for a peaceful Christian life. That'll preach. Man, you want, a good, you, want a, you want a good pillow? You want the best pillow? Have a good conscience. You can sleep at night. The conscience also can be perfected 
or improved upon or, or rendered complete or can become mature or purified. So the, implica- the implication is that your conscience isn't sinless. All right? Don't, don't mistake, don't think that the voice of your conscience is the voice of God. Okay? We've often heard, and maybe we've even said, I would confess that I've said, well, God spoke to me. Now, when God speaks, it's terrifying. (laughs) All right? The first thing that God usually says after he speaks, when he speaks is, fear not. (laughs) Okay? All right? Uh, But the voice of your conscience, you see, the voice of your conscience We'll see that it, I mean, it's reliable, but it's not infallible. Okay? It can be improved upon. And religious deeds cannot improve the conscience. Only Christ can. Only Christ can. So that's what the conscience can be uh, positively. On, on the negative side, the conscience can be weakened, weakened. The conscience can be defiled. The conscience can be encouraged or emboldened to sin. The conscience can be wounded. It can be evil. And it can be seared. And did you notice the the, the progressive digression? So a weak conscience isn't the same as a seared conscience. A weak conscience is a hypersensitive conscience. A weak conscience is a, it overfunctions. That's the issue in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and in Romans 14 about the conscience. There are some believers whose consciences are, are hypersensitive to eating meat that's sacrificed to idols because they used to participate in that and it's, they can't dissociate just you know, protein from their past. And so it's, it's hypersensitive. It's overfunctioning. A seared conscience is insensitive and non-functioning. That's what the conscience can be. Here's what the conscience can do. This is what we read in these verses. The conscience can confirm, bear witness, or testify. The conscience can regulate your behavior. That's the phrase for the sake of. So the conscience helps you make decisions about how to behave when there's no clear thus saith the Lord. Matters of third importance. So there are issues which the Bible neither affirms nor prohibits. Uh, You know, what then? Well, your conscience can coach you or guide you. And so we need to listen to it. And next week, we'll talk about how to calibrate your conscience so that it is in line with the Word of God. But that's next week. And then your conscience can condemn you. We read that, didn't we? In Romans 2.15. So so let, let let me even summarize this even more. What is the conscience? Your conscience is your consciousness 
of what you believe to be right and wrong. So your conscience is the courthouse of your heart. Inside your heart is a courthouse. And your conscience is an independent, personal, county courthouse given by God. And it has jurisdiction over you. Right, Leroy? And it has jurisdiction only over you. And in this courthouse are five officers or five characters. First, there's the clerk of the court. And the court clerk keeps records with impeccable accuracy. Your conscience keeps a diary. And it writes down what we've said and seen and done and what we should never have said and seen and done. And it's all recorded. And a guilty conscience never forgets. It works through our memories. It reminds us of our past. And that's why it needs to be cleansed and forgiven. Do you remember Joseph's brothers in the book of Genesis? Jacob's sons had sold Joseph into slavery in Egypt, but God raised Joseph from the dungeon to the throne. Joseph was in the pit, but then he ascended by God's hand to the post of prime minister, second only to Pharaoh. And Joseph rescued his family and gave them grace. And years later, so they had a season of reunion and love and grace. But then Jacob, the dad, died. And after the funeral, Genesis chapter 50, verse 15 says, When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. You saw the Godfather. That, well, that, they must have just seen this movie. And they're thinking, Joseph is really Michael Corleone. We need to, you know, well, what's going on there? Well, that's the conscience as the court clerk reading back the record. And that court clerk is right there in the courthouse of your heart, your conscience. Your conscience also acts, as, but it's not just a court clerk. It's a witness We read about the testimony of the conscience. Our conscience takes the witness stand and it testifies either for us or against us in any given instance. And this explains why, and hear me now, you do not need the Bible, you do not need special revelation of Scripture to know moral right versus moral wrong. Your conscience acts as a witness to the moral law that's inscribed on your heart. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 15. So there's the court clerk, there's the witness, and then there's the state's attorney. The conscience functions as a prosecuting attorney, cross-examining, interrogating, and exposing our guilt. Again, Romans 2.15, either accusing you or excusing you. Court clerk, witness, prosecuting attorney, and then the judge. 
the judge. So the conscience renders a verdict. Guilty or not guilty. It's like a light switch. You know, it's on or off. Your conscience is a light switch, not a dimmer switch. Okay? Your, your, your conscience doesn't do, it's complicated. Your conscience doesn't do that. It's on or off, yes or no, innocent or guilty. That's the judge. And then, and then, so court clerk, uh, a witness, state's attorney, judge, and then executioner. It carries out the sentencing from the judge. And the penalty is the pain of the guilt that you feel. And one pastor called it a flash of hell in the present. Notice I said your conscience is your personal courthouse. In other words, your conscience has jurisdiction over you and no one else. And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 29, for why is my freedom judged by another person's conscience? And Paul's point is it shouldn't be. And, and notice this courthouse, though within you, acts independently of you. It, it's, it's almost like there's just this other entity living within you. I'll say it again. Your conscience is your consciousness of what you believe to be right and wrong. It, it is the courthouse of your heart. It's an independent, personal, county courthouse given by God having jurisdiction over you and only you, okay? Now, someone may be thinking, why on earth should I care about what my conscience says about me? Pastor, your, your, your whole picture, you know, maybe smooth rhetoric, but uh, your whole picture of an internal personal courthouse, that is so far-fetched. I mean, I mean, if you read in the paper about a judge who was accused of a crime who then decided to hear his own case, you'd laugh. And, and, you know, and then, you know, first he reads the charges from the bench, and then he jumps over to the prosecutor's table to make an accusation against himself. Then he takes a witness stand to defend himself. And then he jumps back up to the bench to render a verdict, all the while logging it for the record. What a joke. Who would do that? Who would do that? You do that. You do that every single morning. You look into the bathroom mirror and you think about it. You think about that courthouse. You can't get away from it. You judge yourself every day, and it doesn't feel like a joke. It feels real, and it's deadly serious. Why is that? Well, the why is part of the mystery of being made in the image of God. I mean, unique among all creation, we were made in the image of God. Of God, meaning we have a conscience. Your dog does not have a conscience. If your dog had a conscience, it wouldn't jump on your new couch after playing in the soggy backyard. Okay? But you are not your dog, you're an image bearer of the Almighty. And you and I possess this, this gift. 
is this gift, this internal guide and monitor and witness and judge. Yeah. And as a guide, your conscience coaches you to conform to what's right. And as a monitor, your conscience observes whether or not you did what was right. And as a judge, your conscience renders a verdict, the result being guilt or innocence. And beloved, this is from God. This is from God. This courthouse in the heart. Why did God give us the conscience? Well, here's why. Two reasons. To believe and to show love. That's why. He gave you a conscience so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. I don't even have to show you, with what we've said so far, I don't even have to show you a Bible verse to show you your need for Jesus. We just need to talk about our consciences. We're in this room right here, right now, because of our consciences. Our consciences have convicted us of our sin. And yes, we could talk about sin in the Scripture, of course, but you know what? Let's just talk about Our consciences. I mean, we could talk about how we all, all of us, fall short of our own consciences' expectations. We is it not true? We have expectations of ourselves that we constantly fail. We don't we don't like to be around gossips, and yet we gossip. We don't appreciate people who don't speak the truth, yet we tell white lies. We don't appreciate undisciplined language, and yet we fail to leash our own tongues. We, we judge others, but we fail to keep our own standards. We say, and we say we're going to change. We say, no, this time it's going to be different, and yet we, we just, we don't. And you know why? Because you cannot work your way out of a guilty conscience. Your conscience can tell you what's wrong, but your conscience can't forgive your sin. Your your conscience is diagnostic, not salvific. It cannot save. It can't forgive sin. Your conscience, your conscience is your courthouse, and what you need is a higher court to overrule your conscience. And his name is Jesus, amen? That's why the Apostle John says in 1 John 3, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him, our our conscience. For whenever our heart condemns us, our our conscience. Does anybody's conscience, has your conscience condemned you this week? Be of comfort, brother or sister. For the Bible says God is greater than our heart. He's greater than our conscience. And he knows everything. Your conscience knows a lot, but it doesn't know everything. God knows everything. The Apostle John says, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, 
We have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because, he keep, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment. See, this is what gives our conscience confidence before God. Here it is. That we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. This morning's Bible reading, we've been on a Bible reading journey with the Gospel Coalition. Oh, don't miss today's. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. Two of the most powerful verses in all of Scripture. But now... But now the righteousness from God has been made known to those who, not who are good, but who believe, who believe Jesus Christ. God gave you your conscience to show you your need for Jesus. And when you come to the end of yourself and you cry out, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He says today, today, but now. You will be with me in paradise. And his death, burial, and resurrection are the only all-sufficient provisions to cleanse a guilty conscience. Amen. Amen. He gave you your conscience so that you will believe. And I'll tell you why else he gave you your conscience. So that you will love others. The Apostle John continues, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, there it is, and love one another just as he has commanded us. So God God wants us to take our cleansed, purified consciences and put them to the service of others. Love one another. And don't judge others when their consciences differ from yours. And that's what's going on in 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10. Some believers can eat food that's associated with pagan temples because their conscience is strong. And others, their conscience, is, they're not so strong. And we need to learn to live with dissimilar consciences and respect each other for that. Corinthians isn't the only space where Paul talks about this in Romans 14, 2, 3, and 4. A similar, though not identical, situation emerged in the church community, and Paul had to address it. And here's what he says. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. And again, by weak, he's not meaning defective. He means just their conscience is not fortified in that particular issue. And then Paul says this in Romans 14, 3. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Do you hear what he's saying? Who, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It's before his own mass. So my conscience is accountable to God. It's before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. So respect each other when your consciences differ over matters of opinion. Give each other space. Our world, our country is struggling with this right now. And we need to show our world, our community, our neighborhood, our family... 
what it looks like to graciously give one another space in matters of opinion according to conscience. Isn't that what Amanda Gorman was getting at in her beautiful poem? And so we lift our gaze not to what stands between us, but what stands before us. We lay down our arms so we can reach out our arms to one another. We seek harm to none and harmony to all. Paul said in Romans 15, Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. That's why God gave you your conscience. Amen. Well, after, after Amanda's stunning, poised, beautiful, soul-storing oration of the hill we climb, you know what happened later? An Oki showed up. Huh? Wearing jeans and a cowboy hat with boots on at an inauguration. Who does that? Garth Brooks does that. Singing Amazing Grace. And then he had a sing-along. And then in the age of COVID... He hugs everybody. And then he giggles off stage. I mean, it seems so out of place. And yet, so perfectly in place. Amen. And for just a moment, our, our, it just, to me, it just felt like our self-righteousness fell and grace was offered to all. And, and, and before the final verse... Garth invited the crowd to sing with him. He said, not just the people here, but the people at home, at work, as one, united. And I don't know what your reaction was, but it's like, but we're not united. Our nation is divided. And yet, as the camera panned over the platform and the microphone picked up the muffled sound of masked singing, I mean, you could just sense people tasting, if only for just a moment, Amazing grace, amazing, from Lady Gaga to the vice presidents to diplomats to Congress to J-Lo. Well, what if we dared to believe that, that those words actually held the power to change a nation, to change your life, to change your marriage? I don't know what conversation you had on the way over here today. Perhaps the power of grace could change whatever that was. Perhaps the power of grace is in hearing it over and over again until it penetrates and purifies a defiled conscience. Perhaps the power of grace in Jesus is sharing it again and again and again and again and again because that's all we have at this church for anyone is Jesus. That's it. Amen. That's all we have. And a frail conscience in Jesus can become a fortified conscience. And perhaps the power of grace comes when we're finally able to say with St. Paul, I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, but I was shown mercy. Along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Perhaps grace has that power. Perhaps the power of grace is that it shows up when a preacher like me 
stands up and pleads with us every week to trust the only person who can unify our hearts, Jesus Christ. There's, there's unity in the truth that we are all sinners in need of grace. There's unity in the truth that no one wins in a merit-based world, but that we have merit through Christ. There's unity in the realization that though the conscience can speak a word, it need not have the final word. Amen. And perhaps there's unity when wretches, yeah, let's just say it, wretches like us weep when we hear amazing grace. And it's because we know deep down in our bones it's true. And here is what else is true. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And it's because he is greater.